0: all right well good morning church hey listen so today we are continuing our sermon series through the parables of jesus and uh this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the talents the parable of the talents now before we turn there let me give you some context and some background on why i feel like this is the parable that the lord is leading us uh to this morning uh, after the announcement last week, for those of you who don't know, there was an announcement last week, and uh, we uh, made an announcement about our name, which is going to be Mission Church starting January 8th, and we also made an announcement about our intention to move away from uh, a multi-site model to a church planting model. And uh, over the last several months, as I've been processing through this and praying through this, Uh, One of the things that I really started to think about and wrestle with is the concept of stewardship. The concept of stewardship. And uh, I feel like that that feeling was already there subconsciously, but it became much stronger post-announcement. Ever since last Sunday, I've really been wrestling with this this idea of of stewardship. Uh, Last week, I had someone come up to me when we were out in the courtyard, uh, this lady who's on staff, and she said something that really stood out to me. She said it feels like the first 20 years of our church was a book. And that book had several chapters and several characters in it. And now, starting in January, it feels like we are starting a new book that will have new chapters and will have new characters. And so for me, that kind of just became a framework for me, thinking about the idea of us starting a new book with new chapters. And some of the characters are from the old book, and God has brought even more characters. Uh, by his by his grace and his goodness but as I think about and pray about us stepping into this new season of of mission church one of the things that I've been really wrestling with is this concept of stewardship because even though this is very exciting and even though we're all optimistic there, there's a there's a weightiness to this that, that we now get to create this 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 culture in light of who we are now mission church And so as I've been praying and processing about that, it's not only has it been hitting me at the individual level as the leader of this body, as the shepherd of this body, but also I feel like it's been hitting me at the corporate level. One of the things that we see in scripture is that God, uh, not only does he hold individuals accountable, but he holds generations accountable. He holds cities accountable. He holds both individuals and groups accountable. And so as I've been wrestling with that, honestly, it feels... This new season feels a little bit like when I stepped into fatherhood. I remember when my first uh, daughter, Leah, was born, and uh, we're at the hospital, and the nurses are helping us with everything, and and it was awesome, and it was easy, right? Well, at least for me, it was. I can't talk about what it was for Lily, but for me, it was great. Uh, They were doing everything for me. And um, I remember about day three, they're like, all right, well, you're ready to be discharged. And I'm like, what what does that mean? And they're like, "Uh, we're sending you home. I'm like, you're sending us home, like with the baby? And they're like, yeah, with the baby. And I'm like, and you're not coming with us? They're like, no, no, we're not, we're not going with you. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do? I've never been a dad in my life. I don't know how to do this, right? I'm reminded of that, 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 that even though it was an exciting time to, to bring new life into the world, there was also this, this pressure now, this responsibility, this stewardship. Now I have... A child that doesn't belong to me she belongs to the Lord and I am now entrusted with her Lord willing for the next 18 years to steward her for the glory of God and for the good of others and so that was a really big thing right and I find myself thinking about that as we step into this new season that even though God is doing so many cool things there's this there's this weightiness to what we are stepping into and 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 what does it look like for us to be stewards of what God has entrusted us with. And so for those reasons, the Lord drew me to the parable of the talents, because I feel that if there's any parable that addresses and unpacks this this concept and this topic of stewardship, it is the parable of the talents. And so to do that this morning, I would love for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. And uh, we are going to be looking at verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. As you can tell, there's a lot of red in this section. So Jesus is on a monologue right now. And uh, here's what he says in verse 14. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Everyone say entrusted. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Everyone say ability. Then he went away you delivered to me 5 talents. Here I have made 5 talents more. His master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." Everyone say joy. Verse 22. And he also had and he also who had the 2 talents came forward saying, "Master, you delivered to me 2 talents. Here I have made 2 talents more. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I, do, where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance." But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servants into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we uh, come before you this morning, and I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this parable. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we look at the red letters again, in this section where there are so many red letters, so much of Jesus speaking and preaching and teaching, I pray that as we look at this particular passage, at this particular parable, that you would help me to rightly divide your word. Lord, I don't wanna give my opinion. I don't wanna give my perspective. I want to rightly divide your word. I want to exegete what's in front of me. Lord, my job is not to convince anybody. My job is not to uh, have people hear who can't hear, have people see who can't see. That's not my job. That's what you do. You do that through your word and through your spirit. So whether this sermon results in people's hearts being hardened or people's hearts being softened, that is between you and them. I just pray that you would enable me to clearly communicate what the text actually says. And once I do that, I know you will take care of the rest. Thank you, Lord, that your word is sufficient, and thank you also that your work is sufficient. And so I pray, Lord, even in light of this new season that you are leading us into, help us to understand this text so that we might be better stewards, not just of what you have given us at the individual level, but also of what you have entrusted us with at the corporate level. Lead us now. Guide us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Now, in my opinion, the parable of the talents is easily one of the most well-known parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. But here's the thing. Just because it's well-known doesn't mean we actually understand it. Even though the parable of the talents is very well-known, I would argue that it's not very well-understood. And so this morning, as we approach this text, as we approach this parable, there's a good chance you've heard a sermon on this parable, a very good chance. But just because it's well-known doesn't mean it's actually understood. And so in light of that, what I wanna do today, before we talk about any uh, uh, implications or applications for us, I wanna make sure that we, as a body, understand what this parable is actually about this is a very heavy very serious parable now to fully understand this passage and this parable i believe we first have to zoom out before we can zoom in in order to understand what jesus is saying between verses 14 and 30 i believe we first have to zoom out and look at the overall context and look at the overall chapter and look at the overall section where this passage is found. Because if we don't, we won't understand what Jesus is actually saying in this parable. Now, this parable, I mentioned this earlier, is located in a sea of red. There's a bunch of red letters in this section of your Bible. And the reason why is because this section is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason why it is called the Olivet Discourse is because it is a discourse that took place on the Mount of Olives. So in Matthew 23, so a couple chapters prior to this, Jesus essentially is calling out all the religious leaders. Woe to you for this and woe to you for that. And then after the, 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 the calling out session, Jesus and then his disciples are leaving and they are on the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to be in Jerusalem and to visit the Mount of Olives. And when you stand on the Mount of Olives, you can see the city of Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount. And so Jesus and the disciples are on the Mount of Olives and the disciples, they look over and see the, the, the magnificent, glorious temple and they make a comment about it to Jesus about how beautiful and magnificent the buildings on the Temple Mount are. And then Jesus responds with a very unexpected answer. Jesus responds to their comment by saying, there will come a day when everything you see will be torn down. There will come a day where that temple will no longer be standing. And he's referring to something that would happen roughly about 40 years later, 70 AD, the Romans would come. They would ransack Jerusalem, and they would tear down the temple. So he's predicting the future here. But that's not the answer the disciples expected. They were just making a comment about the temple. And Jesus says, yeah, you see that temple? It will one day be gone. It will one day be torn down. So the disciples hear that, and I would say partly out of curiosity, but mostly out of concern, they're like, what? Can you, uh, how about we double click on that and uh, go a little deeper? What are you talking about? Right? So they ask him, they said, it, it, it seems like you're talking about the end times. So, so, so how do we know what are the signs that we are to look out for when the end times are coming? And so essentially what Jesus does from the beginning of 24 through 25 is he answers their question with a series of stories and parables. But all the stories, all the parables are in response to the question that they asked about the end times, about the second coming. And what's interesting is that each one of the parables, each one of the stories that Jesus tells reveals something different to us about the second coming of Jesus, But if you zoom out, what you see is that the overall thread throughout all these stories, throughout all these parables, is Jesus wants his disciples, both then and now, to be ready and to be prepared for the second coming. He is literally explaining to them what it means to be faithful and fruitful in the meantime, between his first coming and his second coming. So as he gives this, 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 just masterful list of stories back to back to back to back one of the stories one of the parables that he tells is the parables the parable of the talents you see but if you don't understand that the parable of the talents is told within a wider context you're going to misapply the parable of the talents and so you got people who are using it for business practices here's here's what it is to be a good businessman steward your money when jesus preached this he wasn't thinking about dave Ramsey. But if you don't zoom out and see where the text is, where the passage, the parable is found, you can make the parable parable about whatever you want it to be about. But Jesus is talking about the end times. How do we ready ourselves? How do we prepare ourselves? How can we be faithful and fruitful as we prepare for his second coming? Now, in this parable, he talks to us about a master, um, uh, an an owner, uh, an employer who is going on a trip. But we are not told how long the trip is. He's gone for an indefinite amount of time. But before he leaves, we are told in the text that he entrusts his servants, plural, with talents, with wealth, with his resources. And he gives it to them, not for safekeeping, but for them to steward it, for them to trade it, for them to invest it while he is gone. Now, for us, that might be an unusual thing, right? Leaving all your stuff to just random people. But in those days, this was a very common event. This was not unusual at all. In those days, the, the wealthiest people had servants, the employees, if you will. And, and these people, they functioned as overseers, they, they functioned as managers of their household. They, they functioned as stewards of their affairs. And they, essentially, and, I, and I, you see this in, in other passages in Scripture, these stewards had to be so trustworthy that essentially they would raise your children for you. If you were wealthy in those days, you didn't even raise your own kids. These stewards would raise your kids for you. And some of you are like, sign me up. <laughs> You're like, that'd be great. Um. But that's the role that these people played. Especially if the owner or the employer or the master was traveling. Whenever the master and his family were traveling, they wouldn't bring the servants with them and the servants would essentially act with almost full authority and oversight over all their resources and all their properties and all their wealth. They would handle and steward all of it the, the most similar thing that I can compare it to in our day is power of attorney. And when an attorney has, attorney has been given the, the, the power, the authority to act on a person's behalf. That's the closest thing we have in our day. And so for the original audience, this was a common occurrence. Nobody would have been shocked by the story that Jesus was telling. So in the parable, we are told that each servant is given a certain amount of talent. One is given five, one is given two, and one is given one. But, but the question is, what is a talent? Like, like what is a talent? Because what we've done, because we're American, right? We were like, we, we, we were just, a talent is just your natural abilities. That's a very talented person over there. That's a, that's a smart person over there. That's a charismatic person. What a, what a talented young person, right? That's not what this text is talking about. So so if we're not careful, we can read what we think talent is into the text. But what is an actual talent? Well, in those days, a talent was not a form of currency. In those days, a talent was a measurement of weight. It wasn't a form of currency. It was a measurement of weight. So in other words, the worth of a talent was determined by what you were weighing. So you could have a copper talent— you could have a silver talent and you can have a gold talent. The weight of the talent was determined by what you were weighing. The copper talent was not as valuable as the silver, and the silver was not as valuable as the gold. Because all a talent was, was a measurement of weight. Now, according to commentators, though, in this day, the most common type of talent was a silver talent, the, the middle one, not copper. And not gold, it was a silver talent. And in those days, in the time of Jesus, one silver talent equaled 75 pounds of silver. So just to give you some context, 75 pounds of silver equaled roughly around 6,000 denarii, which a denarii was a day's wages. So one talent of silver equaled 20 years' wages. One talent of silver. We're not even talking about gold here. One talent equaled 20 years of wages. So in our day, in our economy, you're talking about millions of dollars here, okay? So I don't know about you, but I know that there's a part of me that feels bad for the guy that got one. This dude got, in our day, millions of dollars to steward and to invest because one silver talent is 20 years of wages. So if you extrapolate that out, here's what that means. That means the first guy, the, the, the third guy, got 20 years of wages. The, the second guy got 40 years of wages. And the guy that got five got 100 years of wages. This isn't chump change. This is a significant amount of money that they are entrusted with. All three servants receive a significant amount of money and what's even crazier is no instructions are given at all he just says here manage this and steward this until i get back and what we are told in the story is that the first two servants they start immediately it says that they traded. And they invested. And what I love about the Greek word there for traded is that the way it's written there in the original language, it implies not just a one-time transaction, but it implies a lifestyle of good business, a lifestyle of faithful stewardship. In other words, it's not like they just invested in the right stock one time and they got lucky and then they just rested on their laurels. No, no, no. The implication there is that they both handled their talent their, their wealth, not their wealth, the, the owner's wealth, so well, so faithfully that they did it over time. And over time, as they stewarded, as they managed it, they both were able to double what was given to them. Now, because of their stewardship, the master gets back and the master recognizes them on the one hand and rewards them on the other. He recognizes them because he refers to them as good and faithful. The word they're good in Greek carries the idea of being generous. Being generous. They were generous. Faithful carries the idea of being dependable and trustworthy. So he the recognizes them as good and faithful, and he rewards them with two things more responsibility and. He rewards them with sharing in the joy of their master. Now, the problem is there wasn't just two servants. There was three. And the third servant receives a radically different response. You see, because instead of trading and investing, we are told in the text, he buried the talent. He buried the the treasure. And for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, when we talked about the parable of the hidden treasure, we said this to us, this might seem weird, but in those days, that's actually how you kept things safe. You, you didn't have a safety deposit box. You didn't have a, a, a metal safe in, in your, you know, your master bedroom closet. And so what you would do is if you wanted to keep something safe, you would bury it in an undisclosed location that only you knew about. And so we are told that this individual, Pretty much immediately after receiving the talent, he buries it and never thinks of it again. Problem is, when the master gets back, instead of calling him good and faithful, this servant hears that he is wicked and lazy. The the word there, wicked, literally means bad, evil, worthless. And the word there, lazy... In Greek, it means someone who lacks ambition. It's interesting because one of the things that we have inadvertently kicked out of Christianity is ambition, the pursuit of greatness. Jesus has no problem with ambition. He, He has no problem with greatness. He even tells the disciples when they're arguing about greatness. He doesn't say, hey, stop talking about greatness. Greatness is bad. He actually says, you're pursuing greatness in the wrong way. The problem is not greatness. The problem is your definition of greatness is your definition of ambition. So literally, lazy there means someone who lacks ambition. So after the the master declares that over him, he then loses his talent, and then we are told that he is thrown out of the master's presence, out of the master's joy, to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where if you look at the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew, the only thing he's referring to there is hell. At the end of the story, the third servant is thrown into hell. So if if you're tracking with me, there are some serious consequences here in this parable. This, this, This parable has eternal implications. And that's actually why I believe that it's imperative for us to actually understand its true meaning. This is not a a John John Maxwell uh, uh, five principles on how to be a better uh, business guy. If we make it that, then we literally lose sight on what Jesus is talking about because the last dude ends up in hell. This is extremely serious with eternal implications. So so, so what is Jesus actually getting after here? Like, Like what is he talking about? What is this parable illustrating? Well, to answer that question, we have to remember the question that Jesus is answering. The, the question that Jesus is answering is connected to what the disciples were asking about. Jesus here is asking a question about the end times. They want to know, how will we know that the end times have come? What are the signs? What are the signals that we are to look out for? So so in light of that, I want to, I want to talk to you about the end times because I believe in light of Scripture and in light of what scholars say, there's a specific moment in the future that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. According to Scripture, there are essentially three judgments that happen. One judgment is for the nations. It's actually in the next passage uh, we hear about the sheep, the sheep and the goats. And what, what scholars say is that in that in that passage, uh, uh, God is judging the nations. And, and they're being judged based on how they interacted with Israel, his people. That's one judgment. That's a, that's a corporate one of nations. But according to Scripture, there are two judgments for individuals. Not groups, individuals. And we have to understand both if we are going to understand what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. The first judgment that we are told about in Scripture is the great white throne judgment. And if you want to read more about that, you, you actually find it in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, what we discover is that all the dead, everyone who's died, essentially everyone, all of humanity, will one day stand before the great white throne. And as they come to the front, there's a book called the book of life. And those Who have placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior will have their names in the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, written in the book of life, then you are sent into eternal life with God in his presence. But if your name is not written in the book of life, instead of eternal life with God, you experience eternal death apart from God in the lake of fire, it says. That's the first judgment that the Bible talks about. But for many of us, that's the only judgment that we know about. We think, that's it. As long as I pass that one, I'm good. You see, but according to Scripture, there's another judgment. There is a second judgment. For for those who have their names written in the book of life, for those who are genuine followers and believers of Jesus, then you experience a second judgment, which is called the Bema Seat Judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment is for believers and disciples of Jesus. And the Bema Seat Judgment is referred to in 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, James 1, uh, 2 Timothy 4, And before I read to you some of the passages that tell us, so I don't want to just, I want to show you that the Bible teaches this. I want you to know this second judgment, the Bema Seat judgment, is not for the purpose of evaluating your salvation. That was at the first one. It's not for the purpose of evaluating your salvation, it's for the purpose of evaluating your service and your stewardship as a Christian. Say it again. That second judgment, the Bema Seat judgment, is not for the purpose of evaluating your salvation. Your salvation is secure in Christ. It's for the purpose of evaluating your service and your stewardship. Now, let's see what the Bible says, because who cares what Will Franco says? What does the Bible say? Look what 1 Corinthians 3 says, 10 through 15. Paul writes, according to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Then he says, he's talking to believers here, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Then he says, now if anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, get this, will become manifest, For the day will disclose it. He's talking about the Bema Seed day. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. At the Bema Seed, whatever survives the evaluation, you will be rewarded for and the Bible talks that about the reward is uh, imperishable crowns. You are rewarded. Verse 15. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4 says this. This is how one should regard us. Uh, listen, to, listen to Paul's language. It's both the servant language and the steward language that we've been talking about in this text. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Then he says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. It's the same thing that says in Second Timothy 2. Entrust what I have given to you to faithful men, dependable men and women. Verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then he says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So get this. If you're wondering what's going to make it through the evaluation, what's going to make it through the fire, it's not just what you do, it's why you did it. Because it's not just the things, but it's the, you get the purposes of your heart are disclosed. Some of us are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. We're we're doing it in order to get God's love instead of in response to God's love. And it says, don't miss that, some translations even translate it as praise. Then each will receive his praise, his commendation from God. Like God will literally commend you for how you stewarded what he gave you. Let's keep going. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Again, he's talking about Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in John, in 1 John 2, says this. Again, I stress this. He's talking to Christians. He says, and now now little children, little children there in Greek literally means little born ones. So this is a, a, a gospel indicative. He's talking to Christians. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That that, that when we stand before the Lord, again, at at this second judgment, not for the purpose of salvation, it's it's not our salvation being evaluated, but our stewardship and our service, some people will be commended and some people will feel shame. That's what the Bible teaches. There are people in this room who've never heard this before. You thought the only one you gotta worry about is that first one, fire insurance. As long as I have faith, as long as I'm spared. There's a reason why Jesus, when he's talking about uh, 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 John the Baptist, he talks about the least in the kingdom of heaven. The least of the kingdom of heaven are the people who got in but says that you just, everything else gets burned up and you get in, only your soul gets saved because You didn't steward anything for the Lord. See, see, we don't talk about this stuff in church. And if you don't understand this context, the parable of the talents will make no sense. You'll make it about Dave Ramsey or John Maxwell. And that's not what this parable is about. Now, the question you may be asking is, why is it referred to as the Bema Seat? Well, the Bema Seat was actually a place or a platform where a judge would sit during the ancient greek games the, the judge during the ancient olympic games the original ones would sit on a bema seat and as the events would happen the contestants would be judged by this judge who was sitting on this platform called the bema seat and so then at the end of the events they would stand before the judge and the judge would determine who were the winners and who were the losers? Who were the victors? And if you were determined as a victor, if you were declared a victor, the judge would bring you up on that bema seat and give you a laurel wreath, uh, an, an imperishable crown. That would be your reward. And so the reason why Paul uses the Greek word bema here is because that is the mental picture, image that he wants his readers to have. Again, I want to make this crystal clear. The evaluation is not of your salvation. The evaluation is of your service and your stewardship. It's not for the purpose of judging sin. It's for the purpose of rewarding service. Now, what does it look like for us to steward the talents we've been given. Well, it's essentially obeying the things that Jesus has told us to obey. How, are we actually as believers obeying the great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbor? Are we actually living out the great commission of making disciples? Are we obeying his, his word? Are we leaning on his work? That's why Dr. Um, Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Let me go ahead and say that again. Grace is not opposed to effort. Because some people are here thinking, it's all about grace, brother. I don't got to do anything. Yeah, you don't have to do anything for your salvation. Amen. Redemption is free. But rewards are earned. so, so, So Dallas Willard says that when we come to know Christ, grace, the grace of God is not opposed to effort. There should be effort. An effort that is motivated by joy and by gratitude and by overwhelming awe of what he's done for you. What we cannot do is earn something that's already been given. That's the distinction. That is the distinction that we need to see. That the purpose of the Bema seat is not to condemn the losers, it's to celebrate the victors. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul himself talks about how he runs the race with endurance so that in Christ, one day he might receive not a perishable crown, but an imperishable crown. Listen, I don't know about you guys. I have no idea how this is hitting you right now, but I gotta tell you, for me, this passage has really ministered to my soul. Here's why. You know, last week with the announcement we made, Lily and I got home and we were just exhausted. And we realized as we were processing it that it wasn't just, last week was not just the culmination of three years here at this church and in this city. It's really a culmination of 18 years. That all the things we've learned over the past 18 years in ministry have been for the purpose of preparing us for this moment and for this season. And something that I looked over at Lily and I said, and I, I promise I don't say this from a place of victimhood, but I said to Lily, no one will ever understand how much we've been through. In the last 18 years for sure, but in the last three years, no one will ever know. That's why I, part of the reason why I got emotional yesterday, last week, when the, the video showed. And something that we processed in that moment was, even though none of you will ever know, God knows. God knows about all the emails that have been sent, all the comments that have been made, all that passive-aggressive Southern culture stuff. (laughs) He knows about every last bit. And I got to be okay with that. (laughs) Thank you. As I as I wrestled, as I wrestled with this text, I, I had to ask myself, am I okay with God being the only one that knows? But that's not just true of me, it's true of all of us, right? Things that have been done to us, things that have been said to us. And yet we still are seeking to love him and serve him, advance his kingdom. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. But I promise you, God knows. It says in the Old Testament, one of his names is he is the the God who sees. Lily, the other day, was watching um, the the, the Chosen series. And there's there's a part in the series where Jesus is talking to Peter's wife. It's just him and her in the scene. And he says to her, he says, I know that you having to let your husband go and do ministry and do all the things that he's doing, I know there's a cost to that. And I want you to know that I see you. And Lily comes busting into the room I was in, and she's like, you're just in tears. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, well, I just saw this scene, and I'm telling you, that scene was put in that show for me. She's like, that scene was put in by someone who is in ministry. No doubt. And again, I say that not not to, to be a victim. I'm saying that because this passage got me through it. It was, it, was, it was, when it says that, that, that David strengthened himself in the Lord, I felt like that's what the Lord did as I wrestled with this text. It was like, Lord, no one, there's different people who know parts of it, but no one will ever know all of it, but you do. You see it. That, to me, is an encouragement. You know who doesn't like this passage, though? You know who doesn't like this parable and this concept of the Bema seat? The people who aren't doing anything. The people who are using all the talents that have been given them, all their resources, all their gifting, all their influence, all their money, all, all of it to build their empire, not God's kingdom. Those are the people who are angry right now. Oh, I don't like this theology. That, that just makes no sense. I don't, it's, it's all about grace, brother. It is all about grace. I'm a grace guy, and Jesus is more of a grace guy than any of us. But the only people that are bothered by this are the people that aren't doing anything. Because you just found out you're going to be held accountable. Here's the thing. In this parable, here is what I think we discover. And I would say scholars agree. The first two servants actually knew the master the the first two servants had a saving knowledge and faith in the master the third servant did not he did not actually know the master intimately and there's actually three reasons why i'm going to give you three indicators three pieces of evidence if you will to prove to you that the third servant did not know the master and they all start with the letter c you're welcome The first indicator is his characterization of the master. The second indicator is his conduct. And the third indicator are his consequences. Let's let's look at each one. The, The first indicator was his characterization of the master. He describes the master as a hard man. And in Greek, the word there, hard, means cruel. It means violent. It means harsh. It means uncaring and unjust. If you're tracking with me, you know that the master is God. God is none of those things. And so what we see is that the third servant had an inaccurate view of the master. He had a limited view of the master. He had a non-intimate knowledge of the master. He didn't know the master, and guess what? Like we learned in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He would stand before the master one day, and the master didn't know him either. that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence, the second indicator is his conduct. You see, because what you see is that his conduct was not marked by joy or by gratitude or thanksgiving. It was motivated by bitterness, anger, fear. He did the bare minimum because he saw himself not as a son, but as a slave. And then the third indicator is his consequences. I would say that his consequences reveal his condition more than anything else, because at the end of the passage, at the end of the parable, he is thrown into hell. For those who are in Christ, we don't get thrown into hell. We're gonna read here in a second that those who are in Christ are secure in Christ. We are in his hand. We cannot be snatched out. So the fact that he ends up in hell is the ultimate proof that he doesn't actually know the master. But let me make this very clear. The reason why he is sent into hell is not because of his lack of stewardship. It's because of his lack of relationship. Because you can misunderstand this. That he's getting kicked into hell because of his lack of stewardship. No, no, no. It's not his lack of stewardship that gets him damnation. It's his lack of relationship. It's not his lack of fruit, it's his lack of faith that gets him thrown into hell. The individual couldn't be trusted with more because he squandered the little he was given. He couldn't live in the joy of the master because he didn't know said master. And he couldn't live in the joy of the master because he didn't even think the master was a joyful person. Now, I would argue that in this passage, in this parable, there are two implications that we can take away from it. The first implication is corporate, and the second implication is at the individual level. The first implication is corporate. And this actually connects back to what we were talking at the beginning. I believe that as a body, as a local body, as we head into this new season, as a church, we are called to steward What's been given us? Every single one of us plays a role in how we will steward this next season, this, this new book with new chapters and new characters. One of the things that stood out to me as I was looking at this text is that out of the three, they ended up with 15 talents. I'm not sure how many talents are in this room. I don't know how, how God has distributed that. I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't need to know. But I do know that each one of us plays a role in the stewarding of our own talents. It's like Dr. Richard Lovelace in his book on revivals. He, I talk about this as much as I can to our staff and our elders, that we, we, we always pray for corporate revival. Lord, we just pray that you would bring revival. And what Lovelace argues is that we can't bring revival. That's not our job. We can't do that. Only God can. He says, but what we can do is participate in individual renewal. And as we participate in individual renewal, if God so wills, over time, you can hit a critical mass and God can bring corporate revival. But we're not the ones that bring revival. We are just called to steward our individual renewal. And so I'm not sure how many talents have been distributed in our body, but I want us to be stewards of what God has given us, of where God is leading us. And what this text teaches us is that there's a difference between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is what you see here the people who show up on a Sunday, that's the visible church. But according to scripture, there's a difference between the visible church and the invisible church, that there are people who are sitting here today within the sound of my voice or watching online who will stand before God and Jesus will say, I never knew you. That's what this text is teaching. That is the corporate implication. The individual implication is this. Every single person in here will have to give an account to the Lord. And something that stood out to me, that I'm not going to lie, when I first came across it bothered me until I studied it more and understood what it meant. He says in the text that the master distributed the talents according to their ability. Now, being American, I'm like, well, that's not fair. (laughs) That's not equal opportunity. (laughs) What do you mean according to their ability? Here's the thing. Here's why it ended up encouraging me, though. One, what it means is that the master knew his servants intimately enough to know what each could handle. Two, though, the master was practicing good stewardship himself. Because you know what's bad stewardship? Giving someone who has one talent ability five talents. or giving someone who has five-talent ability one talent. So what seems unfair is actually an an evidence of his grace. There are people who I have met who I think to myself, praise God, that person does not lead anything of significance. (laughs) Even if they led the local Wendy's, they would burn it down. (laughs) That's just the reality. And God in his grace knows what he gives to certain people. That's what we see here. It's actually an evidence of his grace. And something that I need you to understand at the individual level, even if you see someone, you see yourself as someone who's been given one talent or two talents, you might be tempted to think, well, who cares? I, I only have one. That person's got five and that person has 10. Not only when you compare yourself, do you rob yourself of joy? But God's not asking you to look at someone else's talent. God's asking you to steward your talent. When you stand before him, he's going to ask you about your talent. It says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all members of one body and that we all have been given different gifts. And no no person, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Every single one of us plays a vital role in the body of Christ. And Jesus is not going to ask you about your neighbor. He's going to ask you about you. But that's actually what happens when Peter says to to, to Jesus, hey, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus is like, don't worry about John, man. (laughs) Worry about you. That's what we see. Now, we might be wondering, okay, if I am called to manage and steward, the talents that have been given me, what is an example of a talent in my life so that I can be a better steward of it? Well, uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle says this. He, he summarizes it better than I could have ever summarized it on what a talent is. In our day, not Jesus' day, but in our day. He says, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all our talents. And you know what another talent is that he doesn't talk about, but I think it's an important one? Your season of life. Whether you are a teenager, whether you are a young adult, whether you are married, whether you are an empty nester, whether you are retired, that season that you're in, there are certain opportunities that come with said season, and you're never too young or too old to steward what God has given you. Amen? Saving faith results in serving faith. Saving faith produces serving faith, stewarding faith. Production of fruit does not lead to a profession of faith. But a profession of faith leads to and produces production of fruit. Because Jesus says, you will know a tree by its what? Its fruit. Now, here's the thing. With everything that I've taught up to this point, even though I've done everything in my power to show you that it's not salvation by works, there's probably a part of you that is tempted to believe that even if it's subconscious, that this text, this parable is teaching us about salvation by works, that that salvation is something we must earn. Salvation is something we must work for. And if there's ever been a parable that if misread can lead you to believe that, it is this parable. I have to steward better. I have to do more. But what I want you to know is that the only reason why we would ever get the opportunity to stand before the second throne is because somebody took our place in front of the first throne. The the ultimate good and faithful servant is not me, is not you. The ultimate good and faithful servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to John 10, we are told that this good and faithful servant was entrusted with the most weightiest talent that's ever been entrusted to someone. He says that the Father gave to him the sheep. We are his treasure. We are his weighty talent. He was entrusted with us. It was placed in his hand by his father. Look what it says in John 10. In John 10, it says, verse 24, so the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be snatched. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, who put them in his hand? Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So, so according to the gospel, not only are we secure in Christ's hands, but we are also in the father's hands is double security. That that Jesus being the ultimate good and faithful servant, Jesus being the good and faithful steward, he was entrusted with us. It it says in the text that to, to whom much is given, much is expected. No one was ever given more than Jesus. And so no one had more expectations on him than Jesus. And yet he is given the treasure. He is given the talent. He is entrusted with it and he stewarded us, stewarded us. Listen, the only reason why we are accepted at the second judgment is because he took the first judgment in our place. The only reason why we can even begin to get rewards is because he paid for our redemption. He took the sting Of death, so that our names might be written in the book of life. He was temporarily removed from the presence and the joy of his Father, so that we might be permanently brought in to the presence and the joy of his Father. Jesus didn't bury us, he didn't squander us, he didn't mishandle us. But instead, he died for us, he saved us, he redeemed us, and he commissions us. Through his goodness and his faithfulness, he made a way. And now, because of his vertical work, when we one day are in eternity with him, we don't partake in our own portion. We partake in his portion. We don't partake in our own joy. We partake in his joy that he earned in our place. But Jesus is so incredibly worthy. Our savior is so incredibly worthy and beautiful and glorious and magnificent that what the Bible teaches is that even once we get our crowns at the Bema seat, when we are finally in his presence, We will take the crowns, however many we have, and we will lay them at his feet. Because at that moment, we will realize that the ultimate prize, that the ultimate reward was not the crowns, it was him. He is why all of it was worth it. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 4. John says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what what must take place after this. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one, not two, not three, not four, with one seated on the throne. And he sat there, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cranlion, think I'm saying that right and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments which are the righteousness of Jesus with golden crowns on their heads this is their rewards verse 9 And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, says the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And it says they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created, church. That, that that because of what Jesus did for us, because of who Jesus is to us, when we stand before him, we are going to be so overwhelmed with gratitude and with awe and with worship that when we actually stand before Jesus at that very moment, we are not going to be focused on what we've done for him. We are going to be focused on what he's done for us. Come on, church. Church, everything else is temporary. Everything else is temporary. The people in your life are going to go away. We're all going to die one day. The car that you're driving is going to get old. The house that you're living in is going to fall apart. The clothes that you're wearing are not going to be cool in three minutes. (laughs) Everything around us is going away. The only thing that matters is this. Everything else is just white noise. Everything else is just distraction. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. That the greatest treasure and the weightiest talent that has ever been given to us is not our health, is not our kids, is not our job, is not our money. It's the gospel itself. The gospel is the pearl of great worth. The gospel is the hidden treasure. The gospel is that weighty talent. And when you understand that, it changes how you view the parable and it changes how you view yourself. That our stewardship is not the root of our salvation. Our stewardship is the fruit of our salvation. That we steward well, not for our salvation, but from our salvation. 1 Peter 4 says this. The end of all things is at hand. I'm talking about the end again. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Then verse 10, as each has received a gift slash talent, use it to serve one another as what? As good stewards, of God's very grace. And get this, the, the, I love that, that phrase, The God's very grace. The, the Greek word there is multicolored grace. That's what it means, multicolored grace. It's the same Greek word that James uses when he says that we will face various trials. We will face multicolored trials and the grace of God is multicolored grace. That for all the trials we will face, God doesn't give you hypothetical grace. He gives you actual grace. And he gives you multicolored grace for your multicolored trial. And it says that we as stewards are stewarding the gifts that we've been given, but the ultimate gift is the grace of God. What's counterintuitive about the gospel is this. The more we realize that we are secure in his hands, the more we will steward what's been placed in our hands. Amen.
1: Welcome. We're so glad you're here. My name's Danielle Byers. Hi, I'm Whitney Clay. And we're so glad you're joining us. What a message. It was so good. We were talking in here like comforting in some ways, convicting definitely in some ways. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, we sat down, the people I was sitting down beside were like, oh, I thought Parable of the Talents was like, you know, not tap dancing, but you know, um, like your <laughs> gifts from God. And I was like, oh no. So anyway, it's good that we can all learn something and <laughs> we're going to talk about some of those things that we're going to, we learned today. Um. His, the main scripture today was in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a long passage. We know you've already heard it from Pastor Will, so we're not going to reread it. Um, but there are three servants, and so we have some questions that um, we want to go over this morning, and maybe you had these same questions, or we want you to have your own discussions. <laughs> So we're going to have one together. Yeah. So as
2: you're talking, maybe you're in your group together, you can kind of talk through these things. Also, Melissa is moderating. So she's on our platforms. We'd love for you to chat with her. Let her know kind of your thoughts or answers to these
1: questions as well. And you can click that QR code right up here if you want to respond in any way. Yeah. Um, So one of the questions Pastor Will gave us Mm -hmm. uh, based on this sermon
2: is we learned that the talents were distributed by the master according to each individual's abilities and capabilities. Right. Um, And he said, why do you think that is? what would happen if that wasn't the case? And I
1: thought that was such a good question. So good. Yes. <laughs> so um, one of the things that Pastor Will said was that that's grace, that mm-hmm. Jesus knows us intimately and he knows what we can handle. Um, as a mama, I've got to get a little, give a little shout out to my girl, Emma. She's a, in college hey, <laughs> and she's watching us this morning. But that because that really applies to this question because, like, she's off in college. Mm-hmm. And so um, is she expected? Are you as college students expected to, you know, host a revival at your local campus? <laughs> and that's what's expected of you to be a good steward? Like, God knows what right. each one of us, what are our, our specific and gifts are what our abilities are, and also what your capacity is. So I've had Mm -hmm. so many mothers say to me, like, what am I supposed to be doing for the Lord in this season? I'm home Mm -hmm. with my children all the time, and I feel like I'm not doing enough for the Lord, but you're doing what God has called you to do, and you're being obedient. And I love that he said, we're stewarding the word and works of Jesus. There are many ways to do that. I love the focus of discipleship here, um, because that is the focus of the word. And sometimes discipleship looks like I have a one-on-one relationship with someone that I meet on a regular basis. And I do, and I'm also being discipled by someone, and we go through the word of God. Sometimes you're discipling your children at home. Sometimes you are without like specific, they don't necessarily know it, but the people around you, your roommates, the people in your class, you are being a good steward of the Mm -hmm. work and the works of Jesus. So that should be comforting to all of us that um, I don't have to worry about whether I was given 10 or five or one, you know, um, but that I can just be obedient to what the Holy Spirit tells me to do and be a steward of God's word to those around me. I like how
2: he said that that, amount, that talent was still a valuable amount of money. Yes. Like it, and so the fact that it's one or five or 10 or however right. many, it's no more or no less. Yes, And yet there's an intimacy there that he yes. knew. And and I think that's where I seek the comfort. Like, mm-hmm. man, God knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows mm-hmm. how he's gifted us and wired us right? and uses us. And just like you said, those are beautiful examples of how God can use each of us. It doesn't have to be from a platform or from with a microphone. It can yes. be in your home on a Tuesday with some friends or right. a walk
1: around the block with someone. Mm-hmm. It can just all look so different. Yes, your neighbors, yeah. the people you do life with. Uh, that is something I learned today. I had never heard, and it's written in tiny print in the bottom of my Bible, but about it being like 20 years wages. Yeah. Like yeah. (laughs) So one talent was a lot. (laughs) A lot. Yes, yes. So in really thinking in those terms, you know, I felt sorry for the third servant before. Like, well, maybe he was just scared, which he talked about. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm. But he was scared, but like he he didn't want to lose it. But like 20 years of wages, if he had just deposited it in the bank, that would have shown that he understood the worth of it and it would have gained interest. So, um and yeah. I think that shows he didn't know the master, like right. he said. And I know yes. we'll talk about that in a little yes. bit, but but that's part of it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so <laughs> the next question we're going to go over is: According to Scripture, every follower of Jesus will one day stand before the bema seat of Christ to give an account. How does knowing that reality change your view of stewardship? Does that truth comfort you or concern you, and why? And I want to read one of the verses that he gave us, um, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, and 5. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes." who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God.
2: Yeah. And I love how that passage says the purposes of the heart. Like that's really, we know all throughout scripture that Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't just look at the outside. God looks at the inside. He looks at our heart and he's the one who's going to know, like I love Will talked about the motivations. Why did you do what you did? Like that's, what's going to be judged at this judgment seat. And Mm -hmm. I love how too, he reminded us again and again and again, that this is not the salvation judgment seat, right? This is a judgment reserved just for believers. Yes. So that first seat, that great, great white throne judgment is did you know Jesus as your yes. Lord and savior? Or do you not have a relationship with him? That's that judgment. This is now for believers where we come and we, we see the father and he says, wow, this is what you did for me. Mm-hmm. And let's look at it. Let's mm-hmm. talk about it. Let's look at it together. And there's judgment there based on our motivation, our heart, what we did with what he gave us. And for me, like that's an interesting question, like to comfort or to concern. And I wonder kind of what your thoughts are. Maybe you can share that in your group or, t- you know, uh, to Melissa over here, she's moderating. Um, I think for me, it does both. Like there's a comfort there. Like Will said, there's an intimacy with my father that he knows me. He knows the whole seasons and stories Mm. (laughs) of my life. Praise God and how he's the one who's written that story. Um, and so there's comfort there with that intimacy with him, but it also should cause me to pause and say, I need to evaluate my life. I need to evaluate the things he's given me. And am I stewarding that? Well, my time, my talent, my resources, all the things, how do they honor him? Yes. And I think, so for me, I think it does A little bit of both. Like there's comfort in knowing that my father, the one who I have an intimate relationship with, is the one who's judging me. Mm -hmm. And nothing can change that relationship. I'm secure in that at that judgment seat. But at the same time, I have opportunity here on earth. And
1: how am I stewarding that with what I have left? So, in essence, the third servant is not at the second judgment. Right. He didn't get past the first judgment. Yes. So I want to give some clarification there. As believers, when we get to the second judgment, there will be no one at the second judgment who is rejected and thrown right. into hell. Right. Um, so for everyone at the second judgment, Jesus still said, "Well done, good mm. and faithful servant." And I've heard an amazing illustration, and obviously it's fictional. It's just someone's like you know picture of what the bema seat would be. Um, and it's it's so great, but anyway it's it's basically showing us that we'll be around the seat, and there will be joy mm. um, we'll all be celebrating together and there will be believers there for instance, the story talks about this older woman who You know, here on earth, we may not have known her name or know who she was. But when Jesus called her forward, there's this amazing intimacy between Mm -hmm. the two of them. And he says, well done. And all of these crowns she puts at his feet because she's been so faithful Mm -hmm. and um, discipled so many in her life. And everyone in the room there knows her. Um, But then the people who can only give him one crown. The shame that Will is talking about, we as a believer, it's like if I go in front of the most amazing king on planet earth, you know, thinking in human terms, and he's given me everything, mm-hmm. and all I have to give him is the one little thing he gave me. That's going to be embarrassing for me, and he's still going to say, Yeah, I love you. You still get to come in. Yeah, but then we'll look at the others and think, oh, Why didn't I do mm-hmm. more? and then no, we don't have that grief in heaven, but it's that judgment seat where we'll have that. So um, I like to have that illustration because, yes, it should bring conviction. It yeah. should make us think now, you know, how, Lord, how can I be a better steward um, and and influence more for your kingdom? That's mm-hmm. what it's about. Um, but it's not, it doesn't mean we're going to get to heaven. We're going to be in heaven and walking around yeah. in shame. That's that's not what it is. No. So
2: And I think it's reminding us that that relationship is there. Yes. And I love how Will gave that picture at the end that we, we will be so overwhelmed by his glory that we're just yes. want to give everything back yes, to him. And so right. I think that's the part of it. Like yeah. when we get there, we're going to want to have done more. Yes. I think even the lady with all those crowns would have said, I wish I could have done more, you know? Right. And so how can we make the most of the opportunities
1: mm-hmm. that we have right because now? Because everything at that point is all about him. Yes. It's not about us. Yes. Yeah.
2: Um, in the parable, the, this is the last question that we're going to mm-hmm. look at. Uh, we discovered that the third servant doesn't actually have a saving knowledge, or an intimate relationship with the master.
1: So what specific clues in the text actually prove that? Right. So he points out, he said, of course, the clues all start with a C. Um, But (laughs) he points out um, his characterization, his conduct, and the consequences. So... First, we we know that he doesn't know the master because of the way he describes him. He says mm-hmm. that he's harsh, that he's a hard man, that he's cruel and unjust. And, you know, I've always read that scripture when he says, like, I know that you, you know, reap things that you didn't sow. When the master responds, he doesn't say, you're right, I do that. He says, well, you said that I do that. So if you thought that, right. why didn't you even put it in the bank, you know? That is not who our father is. But we do know that some look at his word and that's what they get is they think, he's not a good God. He's harsh. You know, he'd make everything easy if he was a good God. So we know that... He didn't actually know his master, and that he was marked with fear Mm -hmm. and bitterness, not with joy. Um, He had resentment. He took that gift and didn't think anything of it. He went and buried it, and then went and lived his life, and probably had fun not being a servant while his master was away, um, and wasted his time. Mm -hmm. So, And then the consequences is that he was thrown into hell, and we know that believers will not be thrown into hell. So.
2: Yeah and I think it it's again that intimacy piece right yeah. like if we know our father and we're abiding in him right. as the scripture talks about like we know that we want, we long to live a life in response to the yes. gospel because of what he has done for us. We long to live mm-hmm. in light of that and mm-hmm. in response to that. And that third servant didn't know that he right. didn't have that intimate relationship with him. So how right. could he choose yes. to live in light of that? Or how could he choose to enter into the joy when he didn't yes. even know that the master was full of joy? Mm-hmm. And so the more we know our father, the more we know our savior, I think the more we long to live in light of that yes. and to say, God, okay, that's why I want to serve you. That's why I live out of that. It's not to get anything, which I think mm-hmm. is so easy to flip this passage and say, mm-hmm. well, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to get salvation. Yeah.
1: Again, that's not this passage. This is We have that. Yeah. So now we live in light of it. Right. So in light of that, whether you listen today and... You found joy and comfort in the intimacy that you have with your Father. Maybe you find yourself feeling like you've been a careless Christian and you are not stewarding the gifts that God has given you. Or maybe you're finding that you thought you were a Christian just because you've heard the word, but you didn't actually believe it. You didn't actually believe that he was a good master. Um, Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're getting some clarity around what the Holy Spirit has been saying to you for a long time and you're ready to make a decision. Our hope and prayer for you is that you would come to know the Father intimately. Um, you can reach out to us. You can click on the QR code. We would love to pray with yeah. you um, over whatever those th- that place that you find yourself in is. Um, Jesus is calling you, and He's calling all of us mm-hmm. into a greater intimacy. So we would love for you to respond. Yeah, because I think it's good what you said. There's a lot of misconceptions about yeah. God, like right. you know,
2: and that He's cruel or harsh. And mm-hmm. we would love to even talk with you through some of those things, and maybe as the Lord is speaking to you, like how you can come to know your Father. Mm -hmm. I also want to let you guys know that over the next few weeks, if you've been watching us on the TV app So on your smart TV or Roku, I think Fire Stick. If you've been watching us on the TV app, we're going to begin to make a switch. And we want to invite you to join us over on our YouTube channel. So that should be popping up at the bottom of the screen. Um, But join us at our YouTube channel over the next few weeks. We're going to kind of move away from the TV app and jump on over to YouTube. We'll be moderating over there. So we would love to have you join us over there. Yes.
1: Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. We'd love to see you in person, too, if you're local.
2: We would. So we love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.